Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in reality TV, documentaries, true crime, game shows, and much more. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and download the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Bleave Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleave at Bleave.com. All right, let's get started. My guest is a terrific director, writer, executive producer, and showrunner. She does it all, folks, from true crime to golf. Yes, she's a golf superstar and feature documentaries. Her credits include Helter Skelter, a six-part limited series about Charles Manson. That was for epics. Accident, suicide, or murder for Oxygen. He snapped for Oxygen. Gangland for history. American Greed for CNBC. She is making her feature directorial debut this month at the Chicago Film Festival with her full-length documentary, Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. And according to her bio, she's an incredible golfer and knows the lyrics of virtually every top 40 hit from 1983 to 1998. That is quite, that is, that, that's a lot right there. Please that, that was a mouthful. Yes, that's a lot. Please welcome Rebecca Halpern. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Let's do it. Let's talk about this documentary debuting in Chicago, your hometown, Love Charlie. How excited are you? Tell me all about this movie. Well, it took moving to Los Angeles six years ago to get a gig that would bring me home. So I'm really excited uh, to go back to Chicago with Love Charlie. You know, Chef Charlie Trotter, was a pioneer, a legend in the food world. He single-handedly put Chicago on the map for food. But because he came up at a time before social media, his legacy now stands to be lost to time. And so I was approached to direct this documentary by the producers at Oak Street Pictures, Renee Frigo. And it just felt like I was born to make this documentary. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It was wonderful to go back to Chicago and shoot there. It's kind of an homage to my hometown as much as it is an homage to him, but I didn't want it to be a hagiography. And so if you know anything about Chef Trotter, you'll know he was an enigma to a lot of people. He made as many enemies as he did admirers. And his life's arc, the narrative arc of his life story is so epic and Shakespearean in a way that it became a real study for me, not so much in a food doc, but in a human interest story. You know, what does it mean when your identity becomes intrinsically tied to your work? Uh, and what happens when the work fades away? What are you left with? And in Charlie's case, 
he closed the restaurant and passed away a year later. And there was a lot of controversy around his death and around the year between him closing the restaurant and his passing that I think a lot of people didn't understand and create a lot of buzz at home. So I know in Chicago and in the food world, the story is going to be really loud because we're going to reveal a side of him that no one's ever seen before. We got access to 30 hours of eight millimeter home video footage, more than a thousand postcards, letters, personal correspondence that he wrote to people in his life. And this was back when he used to be called Chuck. So when he opened the restaurant, Chef Charlie Trotter very much became a role that he had to play. That role was something that ultimately consumed him. So that's, that's the nature of the film. For people who like aren't like I'm not from Chicago, how big of a personality, how big of a character was he for someone like yourself who's from Chicago? Did everybody in Chicago know who Charlie Trotter was? That's so interesting. So he opened the restaurant in 1987, having never really worked in a restaurant in any meaningful way before. And when he opened the restaurant, it exploded onto the scene. And in the 90s, which was kind of his heyday, the tail end of the 90s, it also happened to coincide with a time in Chicago that was you know, pretty glorious. You had Oprah Winfrey and her talk show. You had Michael Jordan and the world champion Chicago Bulls. You had all of these amazing buildings, mega programs, skyscrapers going up in Chicago. And it really felt like you know, it was the center of the universe and the hot restaurant at that time, not just in Chicago, but in the country, arguably one of the top five restaurants in the country, if not the world, was Charlie Trotter's. So if that gives you a sense, my mom was actually a food writer in the city at that time. And so growing up, I would hear her talk about Charlie like he was some kind of magical unicorn. And it wasn't until I started working on this project that I really came to appreciate what he was able to do for 25 years, day in and day out at that place. This idea that chefs have personalities, uh, you know, the Gordon Ramsays of the world and the Wolfgang Pucks, that, that they kind of go much bigger than their food, much bigger than the kitchen. How much did you kind of, how much did that play into what you were trying to do as a storyteller? We started production on day one of the COVID lockdown. And that no, no big deal at all. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. no challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, needless to say, plan A flew out the window and we were sent to plan Z like from the get go. And, um, you know, plan A involved a lot of chef's table style food photography where we were going to have his former protégés gather and recreate his dishes and we would shoot them in a really beautiful, slick kind of way so that modern audiences who are accustomed to seeing food photography like that could relate to him, right? Because back in the 90s, you're talking about SD, you're talking about beta, you know, it looks like crap. Well, those plans all went out the window. And so then we were left to figure out, well, what can we do otherwise? And we were really fortunate that we had all of these postcards from when he was in college and immediately after college, when he was developing his vision for food, for life, for love, his philosophy on everything. And what that revealed to me was so much more humanistic than it was culinary centric. And I made the immediate decision immediately to me, the film was no longer about food. It was about this guy's psyche. And it was this meditation on identity and what happens 
when you have to assume a role in order to fulfill a professional obligation? And at what point does that start to really eat away at your authentic self? And who are you if you've played that role for so long, you know? And um, it was interesting too, because I read a food, a review of one of the, the other food documentaries that came out about Chicago at the time. And the reviewer said something like, he was talking about Charlie and he said something like, well, maybe the best food documentary to come out of Chicago won't really be about food at all. And to be honest, that's exactly what I ended up making. And I wouldn't have it any other way. He was such an enigma. And I think that it's going to be really revelatory for a lot of people now to understand who he was and what he was driving for with his pursuit of excellence throughout his career. So did you really do a big pivot style-wise, how you saw the documentary um, from the outset? And then when COVID hit, you you really changed your mind? Is that how it went? We had a lot of verite planned and it was going to be big verite. We, um, Charlie invented, among other things, he's credited with inventing microgreens, uh, you know, the small lettuces that you now see everywhere at every fine dining restaurant. And there's a farm in Ohio called the Chef's Garden, which is owned by a guy named Farmer Lee Jones, who you might've seen on like some of these food competition shows. He's a, he's a judge often. He wears a little red bow tie and overalls. Anyway, Farmer Lee has a commercial kitchen, beautiful facility at his garden where we were going to have Charlie's chefs come and cook. Then we were going to do a big farm to table dinner as part of the film. And, and all of those plans kind of, you know, obviously went out the window because we couldn't get people together. I was lucky because I inherited seven interviews that Will Basanta, who happened to be a DP on Chef's Table, I inherited those that had been shot like two years prior. So that took some pressure off of us from having to, you know, interview them as well. But everything was done remotely. I mean, my first interview with Charlie's mother and his sister was uh, I was on uh, an iPad and I had a crew of two people in Chicago shooting them. Thankfully, you know, everyone was tested before they went in. It was a whole thing. But can you imagine asking someone's mother about the moment their son passed away via Zoom on an iPad? I mean, it was just, but they, but they were open and candid and gave a very emotional interview. And I was really lucky to have that. So you know, there is a way to make a documentary entirely remotely. And we were very lucky too, because these archival materials, we really leaned on those. We ended up animating a lot of the postcards to help give sort of, um, to stand in for, you know, traditional quote unquote reenactments or, or original photography. And I think it really keeps you in that tactile world of the 1980s and 90s when we used to do things for other people like write postcards or make mixtapes or you know actually show people that we care about them and for Charlie you know his love of writing letters his obsession with connecting with others translated to the dishes that he made as a chef at the restaurant the volume of letters that he wrote when he was Chuck before he opened the restaurant was out of this world. I mean, he he was constantly writing sometimes six in a day to one person. And that later translated 
to his work at the restaurant where they had two 10 course tasting menus that they served every night and they never served the same menu two nights in a row. So they were constantly reinventing themselves. Um, we found an in, one of our interviewees ate at the restaurant 424 times. Um, so you figure oh. 10 course oh. tasting menus, never getting the same dish twice. That's 4,200 meals you know, 53 hours or 53 days of his life. If each wow. meal was three hours was spent at that restaurant. And Ooh. so it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun for people. Emerald is in the film. Wolfgang Puck is in the film. So, you know, there is some celebrity there. We were very lucky that we could go and shoot them as well. But in nice. terms of COVID, everything took a third longer. Everything was a third more expensive, especially in the beginning before any kind of like systems were really figured out for people. I was working with a post house that was using Twitch as their editing interface, which had like a 10 second delay. So all the way through rough cut, you can imagine how frustrating that would be to have to do a review where you're watching playback and it's like 10 seconds delayed and you can never get on the same page with your editor about you know, what needs to change. So ultimately we ended up shifting to zoom and we would do like eight hour marathon zoom sessions where he would share his screen with me. And I could literally, it was as if I was in the room with him, which was great. I mean, it was great, but I'm, I'm very proud of what the team accomplished. We had a really stellar crew. Our graphic designer, Scott Grossman did Crip Camp and, you know, the Bourdain doc, um, our, our composer, Brian Reitzel is Sophia Coppola's composer. He did Hannibal. And so we had a really excellent team and yeah, uh, it's been interesting seeing all these chef documentaries that have been coming out lately too. Taking on someone's life as your very first documentary and someone who's passed, like that's a big responsibility. Like you said, you're interviewing his family what kind of pressure did you feel being the person trying to tell this great chefs, this great individual story? I think that's a great question. You know, I cut my teeth in true crime and victimology is such a big part of true crime where you have to earn the victim's family's trust or their loved one's trust, friends, whatever, so that they'll share their story with you. And every time I would write or produce or direct an episode of true crime television, whenever a victim's family member or even a perpetrator's family member would come to me and say, wow, you really, you know, you did my loved one right in this. You really told the story in a way that was befitting of them. That to me is like the highest honor, right? Especially when you're dealing with someone's worst days. And in Charlie Trotter's case, it was interesting because his story did play on some level like a true crime documentary insofar as like, you know, there was, there is suspense, there is a decline, there are enemies, it is, you know, not all wine and roses in his life. He had warts, he was not a lovable figure for a lot of people. And so for me, I, like I said before, I didn't want to make a hagiography, but at the same time, I also wanted people to feel inspired. You know, I think a lot of biopics of famous people sort of dwell in the downfall of someone's life and really sort of make a meal out of that. And I find that really offensive on some level, because if, if someone has lived a life that's worthy of having a documentary of them made, they've obviously done something right. So to, to, to live in that downfall 
it's almost like schadenfreude. You're deriving a kind of joy out of their, out of their misery. And I didn't want to make that. And coming out of the pandemic, I wanted to be inspired. You know, I was waking up at five in the morning, rolling downstairs, working my tush off till 10 o'clock at night, every night. But I had, I had a fire lit under me because I was inspired by what this guy was able to accomplish. I wanted other people to feel that way too. How did you, how were you able to kind of find the nuances in his life? And was that tough for you to go, Ooh, this doesn't make this guy look so great, but I know it's important to the story. Yeah. Um, I, I was lucky because Charlie got pulled into a bunch of very public gossipy kinds of spats of his own making that wound him on, you know, where he found himself on the front page of various newspapers for different reasons. In the year before he passed away, he was suffering from uh, an inoperable brain aneurysm, as well as, you know, it was compounded by some behavioral addiction issues that were causing, uh, you know, extra problems for him. But he was caught on tape in a very compromising situation where he was not in his right mind. He allegedly sold a fake bottle of wine out of his cellar for tens of thousands of dollars, which was completely out of character for him. So for me, I knew that if I didn't at least touch on those things, that it would be, um, I would be criticized for, for sort of making him a saint. And the truth is for me, those downfall moments, I didn't feel the need to unpack those. Rather, I used them in the film as kind of examples of what was happening within his life during that time. And I don't think you really do need to know much more than that. You know, he was married three times. We didn't interview his second or third wife, wives. And the reason why we didn't was because it wasn't about that. All you need to know about his personal life was that it was difficult for him to have a, a, you know, a successful marriage while he was also pursuing the level of success that he had at the restaurant. That was enough. There was a constant debate about how far do we lean into the downfall? And the answer was, let's show more than we tell and let's let the audience kind of make their own decisions about it. And I know I'm going to be dinged by some people for making it too laudatory, if that's even a word. And I know I'm going to make, you know, I know I'm going to be dinged by other people for not, you know, for not going deeper into other things like his charity work, for example. Which was an interesting thing because charity, we tried to, he was very charitable and very generous. We tried to include scenes uh, about his charity work in the film. And there just wasn't a way narratively that it felt organic to the story that way. And so we put it as a slate at the end. So at least it's in there. But I know there are going to be people who say, well, you didn't say blah, 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 blah. Right. How did, uh, in terms of the structure, how you got this made, financing, that sort of thing, I'm always fascinated by how documentarians are able to get these things made, because I know it's not easy. How did this thing come together? So Oak Street Pictures came with half the funding for the film when, when I was hired. We ended up doing about half the production, and then we stopped down. In the process, we made a six-minute proof of concept based on the footage that we had shot, as well as some of the archival that we were able to find. And within a week, we were able to get the remaining half of that. Wow. Yeah. And I credit Charlie's story. I credit the producer, Renee Frigo, with having really sold 
the crap out of the thing, but I also think it was my experience in development, making sizzle reels. Yeah, yeah. And learning what makes a compelling, you know, offering that gets the money and gets the eyeballs. And so there, you know, there we had it. So we made that six minute proof of concept and then we ended up just continuing to roll on in production. And that was that. So that's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as the financing goes, this was all independent investors. We were not partnered with like an impact partners or anyone like that to help us. And it actually made for a very intimate, wonderful team environment where a lot of the investors who were involved actually cared enough to want to be on weekly update calls. And I'm really grateful for their leadership. And I really do feel like I was given a gift in the pandemic. And I know a lot of my crew, my production assistants, they all felt that way too, that they were tethered to the earth by this project during a time when so many people were at sea. So I'm really grateful. How excited are you to premiere this in your hometown? Your very first uh, documentary that you've directed is now premiering in your hometown. I'm sure that you're going to have friends and family that are going to show up at the Chicago Film Festival to see it. Uh, How excited are you? I'm very excited. This is the first in-person theatrical experience that I will have had since the pandemic started. So it's going to be wild. They gave us the largest theater at um, the AMC River East, if anyone knows where that is in Chicago. Uh, Seats 300 and we sold out in 20 minutes. So that was wild. They added a second screening. There's a virtual link. We're going to have a red carpet. All of Charlie's alumni, many of them are coming to the event. I want to back up first second, you had asked me about the narrative arc of the story. And I was very fortunate to be able to interview a chef named Grant Ackett, who is the co-founder of the Alinea Group in Chicago. Alinea, since Michelin came to the United States, since they came to Chicago in 2011, he's gotten three Michelin stars. He had a very public row with Charlie. He worked for, he was wide-eyed and naive when he went to work for him. The scales fell from his eyes. And then they developed this incredible sort of public animosity towards each other. And, and Grant was constantly trying to unseed Charlie as the number one chef in Chicago. Very loud, very public. And we were able to interview Grant and Grant really made the story. He made, he sold it for us. So I'm excited to see how Chicago receives this and how the culinary world receives this. I don't think any other chef documentary has been made that does such a deep dive into who the chef was before they opened their own restaurant. You know, the film, it's funny. It's like, you could be a chef, you could be an artist, you could be an actor, you could be a writer. It didn't, it doesn't matter. You know, the journey that Charlie went on is one that I think everyone can relate to. I'm curious. So you and I are both used to being like on a team, you know, whether you're a producer, you've been a, a vice president of develop, you know, you've been a developer and everything. This is, this is you, this is your name on this as the director. You a little nervous? Very. Uh, yes. To be honest. Yes. Um, one of the big questions that I get all the time, t- people texting me, you know, what are you going to wear? And I have this picture of a woman with a paper bag over her head. And I, you know, it's the kind of thing it's like the movie will start. I'm going to sneak out and go get a drink at the bar while it's happening. I really feel like 
Here's the thing about being the director, everyone else's creative decisions rest with you. Yeah. And in the public sphere, the thing that nobody understands is the process, the decisions, the teamwork, the individual accountability that all somehow gets funneled down to you. So if there's, for example, if there's a track in the score that, you know, nobody yeah. likes, it's your choice, whether you chose it or not, people just assume that was your, you know, decision. And so it's going to be interesting for me to see how it's received, to see where those points of cri criticism come. And uh, and they will be there. Every film has its foibles. I mean, no, no, nothing is, well, some are perfect, but, you know, that's what we aspire to be. I just hope that the, I had, you know, I had several goals in making this movie. One is I hope nobody realizes it was made during COVID. Yeah. You know, we were we were behind the eight ball because we only had budget for single camera interviews, uh, okay. and also because I was remote and I couldn't have two camera, you yeah. know, two DPs running two cameras, and sure. I couldn't really do. I decided to really sort of boil the filmmaking down to its essence and almost give the film an analog kind of vibe, which sends it back to the '90s and puts you yeah. in that place. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, some people might say she played it safe. It's a sit down, a roll, b roll kind of inner, you know, documentary. But on the other hand, I do think that that helps in this case because it keeps you in the story. You know, on some level, it doesn't have those bells and yeah. whistles that distract you from maybe a faulty narrative. You know, sure. we had a strong story. That's what I went with. But yeah, so I'm going to be curious to see how, how people feel about it. And I'm excited to go back. One of the great things about documentaries right now is there's so many different styles. You have docs that are heavy on the recree. You have docs that have wild animation, heavy on the archive. And then you have, you know, docs that are super stylized. But, you know, I think some of the best doc filmmakers like an Alex Gibney, his aren't super stylized. You know, See? Ken Burns, Ken Burns. Yeah. And then, yes, exactly. Ken Burns. I mean, it's. You know, there, there's nothing sexy about a Ken Burns documentary. I think if the story's great and uh, and sounds like it is, I think people are going to love it, Rebecca. Thank you. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I think audiences these days have a certain expectation of what a, each different genre needs to look like in order for it to be worthy of their eyeballs. And, you know, like like the like Chef's Tables and Jiro Dreams of Sushi spoiled everyone on some level. Like we're all used yeah. to seeing this luscious, beautiful food. Well, that's but to your point previously, this is a documentary about a person. It's not necessarily about it's not we're not watching a you know we're not watching sh uh, chef's table we're not watching top chef so i think you know that's exactly right that's exactly yeah. right at the you end know? of the day i want you to get caught up in him not his food it'll be interesting to see how the sales process for this film goes we don't yet have distribution we haven't started pitching it yet um but i can imagine that you know we got a thousand Instagram followers within the first six hours of our Instagram account going live. And so there is a built-in audience for uh, food documentaries, obviously. And I think people are intrigued by the kinds of people who do devote themselves to something the way that he did. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that process works from a feature perspective, as opposed to a TV or, or yeah. a series perspective, yeah. which is what I'm accustomed to. Before we move on, I did want to ask you, it sounds like, and I'm very curious about this, that your experience 
in the TV world as an unscripted producer really helped you as a documentary filmmaker. Is that true? I think that's definitely true for sure. I mean, I came up in true crime at a time when the producer of each episode wrote, directed and produced their own episode. So they were basically the auteur of their own episode and they managed their own team of APs and editors and la la la. And very, in many respects, making this film felt a lot like going back to my roots in that way. And I think what's happening in the industry now, which is, a shame because I think a lot of people who are qualified to direct or to lead teams are not being given those opportunities is that is that the industry is getting so hyper focused on your credits that um, and no, there is no consistency in credits from feature to series to true, you know, all of these genres, all, every production company runs their series a different way. And so you know, I hope that this will get me another directing gig, but I've been directing ever since I started in documentary television. Yes. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of really talented people who are not getting the kinds of creative opportunities that they want and deserve because of this bifurcation. You know, you're either a logistical producer or you're a director. And yeah. to be a director of a limited series like what we're seeing on, you have to have done X, Y, and Z and yeah. gotten la la la, you know, and that's great. And I think that, yes, there is there, like Leslie Chilcott, for example, who directed Helter Skelter, talk about a genius director. I learned mm. so much from her and I was so grateful for the experience. But at the end of the day, you know, back when I started, it would have been a different director every episode. And that right. director person would have been the producer. And there yeah. would have been a showrunner whose job it was to make sure that all six episodes sort of fit under this brand of Helter Skelter, you know? Right. And I think it was a much leaner way to produce these kinds of series. I, I think it was a less expensive way, although the budgets were much higher. And the fat, you know, that there wasn't as much fat made for a much smoother, faster, even more intimate kinds of productions. So, uh, you know, I, I'm in love with feature documentaries now because, because of this experience. It did take me back and I can't wait to, to do more or at least, or maybe even a limited series if I'm so lucky. Right. Um, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. You mentioned Helter Skelter. So I want to ask about that. So you were co-executive producer on Helter Skelter, a six-part limited series about Charles Manson, serial killer. Uh, and that was for epics. What did you learn about Charles Manson? What I should say, what did you learn? What, what haunts you now about Charles Manson um, going grocery shopping with one of the Manson <laughs> women when I, you know, when she landed in LA, that was really oh, an interesting experience. So the last five years for me have been like the years of Charlie. I started on Charles Manson and then I rolled right into Charlie Trotter and to some people who worked for chef Charlie Trotter, they thought he was very much like a Charles Manson, kind of this guru like quality uh, leading this cult of personality. Um, Charles Manson, Leslie Chilcott, the director's thesis about Charles Manson just being an average kind of not so smart con man is exactly right. But what he had 
what he had was some sort of enigmatic charisma, that it factor, I don't know what you want to call it, but it was this pull, this magnetic pull that enabled a lot of wayward young women to fall for him and follow him and do his bidding. I think it was a product of the time as well. Uh, you know, the late 60s was uh, a bit of a lost time for a lot of people. You know, they didn't know what was happening politically in the world. There was a lot of upheaval and not unlike today. And what's the difference between Charles Manson and then the president? I don't know, you know, back when we were making this. So for me, it was really interesting to see those parallels develop in the narrative and then also to to couch Charles Manson's story in, in terms of the era, you know, OJ Made in America uh, was the first documentary, I think, that was billed as a documentary that kind of contextualized an A story in terms of the bigger picture of what was happening in the world around it at the time. And it's kind of a sociological look as much as it was a very personal look at this one true crime case. Same with this series, Helter Skelter. And I think that the lengths that Leslie went to to be specific in her directorial choices, whether it was being in the field and recreating Spawn Ranch, or it was, you know, going to do tabletop shoots of our archival material and the backgrounds that the archive should sit on and all of that. She is just a, she is an exceptional professional in every way. And um, I'm really grateful to have learned uh, from her on that. So, yeah. And it was great working with Rogue Atlas uh, Eli Frankel's company and Greg Berlanti and Warner Brothers. So it was it was very good. Are we ever going to run out of serial killer documentaries? I uh, <laughs> I sure hope not because I have a serial killer series that I'm about to start pitching. So um, uh, you know I hope not. But what I hope is that there's going to be um, excuse me. What I hope is, is that we're going to have an opportunity to start looking at these serial killer cases through different lenses. Um, and I think that whether it's my project that's coming up, or I'm sure there are other developers out there trying to do this too, this is a genre that needs to be busted and we need to find a new way in. And I think I'm really excited about the project that I have that we're about to take out. Um, and I'm actually working with Leslie uh, on that project. I think that we're in for some interesting, interesting things uh, when it comes to that kind of serial killing genre. You know, I'll, I'll never forget the first series I sold was with Scott Free back in 2015, which is Ridley Scott's company. And yeah. it was called it was a series called Alien 911. And it was about people who called 911 when they thought they saw UFOs. <laughs> and um, what I loved about it was like, I'm not a huge fan of the paranormal genre. Right. I find it so fake that it's very right. difficult to suspend disbelief. Yeah. So I really wanted to find a way in that gave it a little bit more more credibility and a little, you know, that people could actually believe. And okay. so we decided that we would tell these paranormal sightings, these UFO sightings through the lens of these 911 calls and only the 911 calls, because when one person called, usually there'd be like a dozen other calls. And sure. by the time you listen to all of them and the banter back and forth between the 911 dispatch and the cops in the field, you would, you would really have a full picture of what, of what it was that yeah. sighting was. And um, when you listen to the call after call, you're not going to believe me, but I, I'm just an account. <laughs> I'm just an accountant, but I swear I saw that. 
you know, it really was compelling. And so we ended up selling that to Animal Planet and it turned into when alien or uh, 911 when animals attack or 911 encounters was the ultimate name of the okay. project. So the aliens, uh, you know, still exist in my my mind, but uh, okay. the project turned into an animal. Wait, thing. it started with aliens and it ended up with animals? animals? Yeah. Huh. And it's funny because whenever I partner with anyone, I always use that as an example. They're like, how much are, you know, how much is the network going to let us do what we want to do? You know, and I always <laughs> tell people when I partner with them, whether it's a book author or it's somebody whose life story I want to tell, you know, your story, the, the series that you imagine is as close to what you want it to be right now as it will ever be. Because from this point forward, you know, just get ready because it could yeah. become, you know, 911 encounters when animals attack. Right. So, when it, right. Wow. Yeah. Aliens, animals, it's all the same thing. You know, right? it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. But I, I, I want to ask you about golf. So okay. um, I, I, I will reset this um, from your bio. Rebecca earned both her bachelor's and master's degrees from Northwestern, where she also played on the varsity golf team. After college, Rebecca continued to pursue competitive golf at the U.S. Women's Open, the British Amateur and Mid-Amateur Championships, the U.S. Women's Amateur and Mid-Amateur Championships, and she earned conditional status on the Futures Tour. Wow. Tell me, like, were you playing like as a little munchkin out on the golf course? How did you get into golf? And like, how far, so how far did you end up taking it before you, you know, you called it quits? So when my parents would, we would go on vacation together, you know, my adult parents wanted to go do adult things. So like play golf. So they would either threaten to put me in a kitty camp or let me come along and I could drive the golf cart. So I, who wants to go be with a bunch of random kids on vacation? That sounds horrible. I'm an only child. I hate people. You know, that's how that goes. Not a team player. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> I ended up driving the cart before you know it. I'm hitting golf balls on the driving range. I mean, I'm four years old at this point. Uh, that's awesome. And, and I started getting attention and people would comment and, you know, one thing led to another. And um, it really became a thing that my dad and I loved to do together, to play golf together. And it's funny looking back on my career in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, as a teenager going into, you know, one of my favorite things, this is my favorite story to tell. So my dad used to love to go into pro shops with me. And he would say to the guy working behind the desk, you know, my daughter really needs a new set of clubs, you know, can you help her? So he would say, oh yeah, we've got this set of my little pony clubs over here, you know, plastic <laughs> shafts and like you right. know, whatever. And that should be good enough to get her started on the driving range, you know? And, and my dad would say, well, can she hit a few? And the guy would look at us like, does she really need to hit any balls? Honestly. I mean, and so he's like, sure, go right ahead. So I'd, I'd, I'd like, hit one ball, his jaw, the guy's jaw would drop, be on the floor. And next thing you know, he'd be like, I've got the new men's big Bertha in the back over there. My dad and I would <laughs> laugh or, 
you know, he loved being paired up with a random uh, couple of guys on a Sunday morning at the local public golf course. That was like another favorite thing that my dad liked to do. You know, invariably the guys would be like, we really don't want to be spending how many hundreds of dollars to play with this 13 year old girl. Please, you know, do not pair us. And there were a lot of times where it got pretty ugly where the, you know, like the starter who knew me and my dad would be like, you know, I promise she won't hold you up. She doesn't hit every shot. You know, she's, you know, she'll drop up by her dad's ball or whatever. And then, you know, I would go to tee up on the white tees, the men's tees. And they would say to me, literally, they would say before they even see me swing, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. The ladies tees are up there. The red ones. That's where you hit from. It's like straight out of a movie. Yeah. So I would you know, I would look at them, I would hit the ball. And, and then by the 18th hole, they'd be apologizing to us for how crappy they played. But, you know, I've had a lot of instances like that, not only as a teenager, but as a, as a woman, as a grown adult person playing golf, there are clubs that won't allow women to tee off before 11 o'clock on weekends. Um, even now in 2021? What? Even now. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, um, it's pretty remarkable that way. And then, you know, just just the nature of bias in sports, I think, you know, you look at the paychecks that the women on the pro tours make, you know, and you compare it. It's not even 10 percent of the men's of the men's checks. It's crazy. And so for me, the reason I chose not to play professionally was because, A, I didn't love it enough to do it the way it needed to be done. And B, it was so expensive that like by the time you won anything, you were still, you know, in the hole for the year, no matter what. So it just wasn't worth it to me. I had too many other interests and I just kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, that I could be among the best and I belong there. And, and I did, and that was enough. How close were you to making the LPGA tour? So I went through the Q school for the LPGA and that's, you know, how you get into the futures right. tour. And you know, I did get exempted into, I got like a special exemption into a couple LPGA events and, but I, I never actually played in one because I couldn't, I had conflicts. I really, it really wasn't for me at that point. I was in my early twenties. I had started my television career already. I was doing some TV work ironically in the golf world. And I thought (laughs) I wanted to be a golf commentator at one point. Um, uh, I auditioned for the big break, you know, uh-huh. a couple seasons. I just decided that, you know, it just wasn't for me. There were other things I wanted yeah. to do. Well, I started in sports. So my, right when I got out of college, I was for the first like four and a half years, I was a local sportscaster or sports reporter. So I covered some like where Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Um, like uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, Morgantown, West Virginia area, and then uh, Bristol, Tennessee, Johnson City, Tennessee. Major markets. Huge. Yes. Yes. um, Yes. I was dominant now. Yeah. So small market, (laughs) small market. Sports is huge in small markets. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I have plenty. We can swap. I have plenty of stories. Um, Not to bring it back to Chef Charlie Trotter, but I feel like I'm living, breathing and eating and sleeping this guy, Uh, you know, he never, he went to school for six weeks to learn how to cook. He never spent more than a couple months in one kitchen before he opened his restaurant. He was 27 years old. And when he came on the scene, 
his food was so revolutionary and groundbreaking and different than anything that anyone had been doing. It was truly remarkable just what he was able to do. And, you know, that kind of talent is inspiring and not everybody has it. You know, it's funny. I got my start in local news as well. I was in Phoenix, uh, in the Phoenix area, working for KTVK channel three. And we would cover the waste management open, which back then was the Phoenix open. Yeah. By the way, worst sponsorship name of all time. Yeah. Uh, I think at one point they they were going to call it the WM open just so they wouldn't have to say waste management. But on my weekends, which I, I produced the weekend show. So my weekends were Thursday and Friday, which were the first two days of the tournament. I would go and I would hire one of our camera guys from the station to come with me. And we would shoot like 10 different packages together that yeah. I would front and I would voice them. And I was not getting paid to do this. This was like back when I had dreams of being a sportscaster. And so I would go and I would shoot them and I would edit them myself, or I would have, I would pay one of the editors to come in on their off day and make my packages. And then the sports guy on the Sunday sports shows would run these packages because they were evergreen. They were like tips on how to play better and things you can do. And so he would run them and they turned out to be pretty popular. And I developed a blog for myself, but of course, you know, the network was like, the station was like, yeah, we don't have a need for a golf reporter, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for that. No, um, no, no ancillary golf content in Phoenix. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. I mean, you do have to kind of carve out your own opportunities in this business. That's for sure. You just have to have a little moxie. Sometimes you got to be willing to put yourself out there. And one of the things I'm coming to appreciate in my old age uh, is you know, authenticity matters. Yeah. And there are a lot of really authentic individuals in our business. And it seems like sometimes the more you try to kind of stifle your own authenticity, the less successful you are. So I like to end the show with some recommendations for what to watch. But before we do that, I do want to kind of just uh, another shout out for Love Charlie, uh, October 18th premiering at the Chicago Film Festival. Yes, it's premiering at the Chicago Film Festival. There's two in-person screenings, the world premiere the 18th, and then a second screening on Friday, the 22nd. Uh, Tickets are still available for the second screening. And then there's a virtual uh, screening opportunity for people in Illinois and surrounding states for a limited period of time during the run of the festival. So if you happen to live in the Midwest and you're listening to this, log on to chicagofilmfestival.com and get your tickets. It is a really eye-opening and inspiring but interesting and sad story all rolled into one. Okay. So anything that you've watched recently or you're watching, or even if, if you're, are you reading anything, anything you've read that you want to recommend to the audience? I, I would recommend any one of Charlie <laughs> Trotter's 17, 14 cookbooks that wow. he has written. Um, okay. I would recommend any of those. He was the grandfather of food porn and the photography that he has in his cookbooks is like, groundbreaking and amazing and they they, you know so that's that's one thing what have I been watching lately that has been pretty interesting and good I have to tell you I've become addicted to Stissel on Netflix wait what tell tell me Stissel is an Israeli family type 
drama um, uh, set in Israel. It's about an Orthodox Jewish family and their day-to-day life. And it's really amazing. So if you're open to subtitles, I would totally, totally watch Stissel. And while you're at it, Unorthodox is brilliant and really beautifully done. Shira Haas is amazing. And, uh, you know, since we just came out of the high holidays, I'll also add that my Unorthodox Life, which is produced by, you know, Three Ball, which was a partner of mine on um, a couple projects, they did an amazing job with that series. It's really eye opening and an interesting way to learn about a culture that maybe a lot of people don't really know, which is sort of fundamentalist. Jewish tradition. I guess that's, that's, that's something right there. Yeah. Those are all good on the scripted side. I'm watching only murder in the building. I don't know. I think something like that. It's on Hulu and Steve Martin, Martin short, Selena Gomez. I'm pleasant, very pleasantly surprised. Very funny, clever, witty. I'd forgotten how funny Martin Short is. And then of course, Succession. Hello. Have you seen those trailers? They kill me. Kill me. So that's going to be really fun when that comes out. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This was a great conversation. I'm excited about this movie and it's so great that it's premiering in your hometown, Chicago. And then, you know, when it goes everywhere, please let me know and I will do whatever I can to get the word out. So I'm very, very happy for you. Yeah. Thank you. This has been just a great chat, Steve. I was so glad we could connect and thank you for supporting the film. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. I want to thank my guest, Rebecca Halpern. For everybody listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have a question, email me at noscriptnoproblempodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.